Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Hey everybody, before we get started on this podcast with legendary Magic Castle creator and owner Milt Larson, I just want to let you know I'm excited our show was invited to the New York Comedy Festival. We'll be there Saturday and Sunday afternoons, November 5th and 6th at 3 p.m. at the iconic Friars Club in New York City as part of the festival that's going to have everybody from Louis C.K. to Jerry Seinfeld, John Stewart, and also amazing performer Bruce Springsteen. And I'm excited because it looks like Jim Gaffigan and his wife are going to do one of the podcasts with me, which should be really, really incredible. And speaking of incredible, it looks like we're going to get the guy who I consider to be the Jackie Robinson of comedy dick gregory so check it out you can call the friars club at 212-751-7272 that's 212-751-7272 for tickets and we'll see you there i'm really excited thank you you are about to listen to an original episode of industry standard with barry katz if you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows go to barrycats.com after you finish the podcast please take a moment to subscribe to it leave a comment and rate it even if you think it sucks enjoy the show All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today is a very unique day because I am at a place that is near and dear to my heart and is a part of my history, the fabric of my life and the fabric of my family, which Milt Larson does not know about, but he will know about because he is my guest and he is the curator, the man who created The place where we are at today, one of the greatest places, if not the greatest place I have ever been in my life, and I'm talking about the Magic Castle. And if you do not know what the Magic Castle is, or if you've never been to the Magic Castle, then you are missing out on something that is extraordinary, because... It's like something that was discovered like Atlantis and you walk into the magic castle and it is like a time capsule has opened up and even the people that come there are dressed like they are at the greatest celebrated wedding ceremony of their lives. It's like you're literally in a castle that's a nightclub, that's a mansion, that's on board the Titanic. It's an incredible experience, and I'm fortunate that I've been able to experience it. Before I get going anymore, I want to thank you all so much for all your support. You guys have been amazing. I can't do this show without you. I'm so honored that you guys have been so supportive sending letters and posts and emails just unbelievable and i would also like to thank people at itunes who have been so supportive of me and the show as well thank you thank you thank you so 
without further ado, I look at my guest, as you know, and I always think of something that I'm going to say. I never know what I'm going to say. <laughs> the first thing I'm going to say, when I was growing up, my mom's sister was married to a man named Sidney Radner. Sidney Radner was my uncle. I only knew him as Uncle Sid, but every time I went over there, there'd be a different card trick he'd show me. There'd be a different illusion that he'd show me. He would entertain everybody there. He would talk about Houdini. He would show me handcuffs that Houdini made himself. He would show me photos of the water torture case that he owned, that he held in Niagara, New York at the Houdini Museum. He would show me pictures of the milk can that he owned. And my uncle befriended Houdini's brother, Hardeen, and for some unexplained reason that I have no idea why, Hardeen made a deal with my uncle and he transferred over 80% of Houdini's collection to my uncle, Sidney Radner, and magic became a part of my life <laughs> when I was a young kid. I didn't want to be a magician. I don't know why. I love what he did when he did the trick that you see on America's Got Talent where I choose the cards that go on each side face down and then they turned over and half are red and half are black and you don't know how it happened. My uncle showed me that trick 40 years ago. Then you see it on America's Got Talent and everybody say, hey, that guy's a genius. Yeah, brand new trick. Brand new trick. That was a part of my life. I always loved what my uncle did because he was so passionate about magic and he dedicated his life to that cause. And I was fortunate enough and very, very humbled and grateful that he gave me the opportunity to sell a Houdini documentary, which I did to the History Channel, which still airs probably every week on television. And it's centered around an auction that my uncle had in Las Vegas to auction off the water torture case, all these different kinds of things. I remember a story that my uncle told me, an amazing story about how things happen to you in your life and how you deal with them and how you go on. My uncle was probably around 87 years old when there was a fire at the Houdini Museum in upstate New York. And the water torture case was severely damaged. And all that was left were the glass and parts of the metal and a few pieces of the wood. And he got an insurance settlement to have it rebuilt and restored. And he hired one of David Copperfield's main people to do it, a guy named John Gaughan. And John Gaughan is a genius. He creates all sorts of illusions for David Copperfield, and he's a brilliant, brilliant man. He did an incredible job, and the water torture case was shipped back to my uncle, and he was so happy until a friend of his called him up and said, Sid, that water torture case, boy, John Gaughan, he did a really great job on that. And my uncle said, yeah, he did. How do you know he did a good job? Yeah, I saw it in the warehouse. Oh, when did you see it? Like three months ago, two months ago? No, I was just there yesterday. What do you mean you were just there yesterday? That's impossible. I have the water torture case here. It's impossible. No, I just saw it. Wonderful, Sid. Great job. <laughs> but I have the water torture. No, Sid, it's there in the warehouse. Hung up the phone. He called up John Gone. And he said, John, my friend just called me and he said he saw the water torture case in your warehouse yesterday. I paid you a lot of money to restore and recreate this water torture case. That would mean that you made another one, an exact replica of mine. John, how could you do that? And secondly, how do I know that the one I have yeah, is not really. the original? And there was a pause on the phone and John said, you don't. <laughs> and hung up. I thought to myself as I was involved in the world of magic, it's an amazing thing because it relates to all forms of life. What's happening is, is you are surprised. You're successful as a magician because the audience never is ahead of you. And once the audience gets ahead of you, you will never succeed in magic. <laughs> it's always about how the surprise happens. Same in horror movies. Horror movies are successful. When you see Saw, it's successful because something happens at the end of that movie. I'm not going to spoil it if you never saw it. <laughs> that you can't believe and you never expected. In comedy, the greatest comedians in the world are successful because you are never in a situation where you can see the joke coming. 
But also in all of these businesses, there's times when you take severe blows and there's difficulty and there's things that happen, but you keep going. And my uncle kept going until he was 92 years old. And when I see you, I see a lot of my uncle in you because you're a guy who's passionate about what you do. You love what you do. You've dedicated your life to what you do. You walk around here and it is literally, you can't find a clean place to stand. You have so much memorabilia and you care so much about it. I would assume that you are somewhere between 80 and 100 years old. You're close. Close. When I look at you and you're still doing the It's Magic show, which is Mm -hmm. celebrating its 60th year at the Edel Theater where you started it. And it's still successful and it's still going to sell out. Or you're doing a partnership with Ridley Scott and Radar Pictures. Mm -hmm. You never stop. And the thing about you that I love is such a metaphor for our lives that you found what you loved. You found what you were passionate about. And then you just kept hammering away and pushing that rock up the hill. And yes, like my uncle, sometimes the rock comes down and crushes you like a bug. (laughs) But then you keep going and you persevere and you figure out a way to reinvent yourself like he did with the television special, which opened up a whole new legacy on Houdini and was such a joy for him in his life. So as I sit across from Mill Larson, the creator of the Magic Castle, and about to have the greatest conversation we could ever have about the history of magic and the history of this place and the history of his life, I just tell you right now, if you can just be passionate about something, one thing that you love and fight for it and dedicate your life to it, and keep fighting forward even in the tough times, it's pretty obvious to me that you'll have the kind of career that Milt Larson has had. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, here on location at the Magic Castle. I am staring at ventriloquist dummies that are looking at me like they want to kill me. It's kind of scary. There's old albums on the walls. There's artifacts that I don't even know are found in any kind of nature. There is a lot of music. It's going to be an exciting time. But first, I have to do my due diligence and I have to introduce my guest, Mill Larson. This is the point in the show where if you know how long these introductions are, you put this on one and a half speed or you fast forward. All right. Mill Larson is a writer, actor, performer, lyricist, magician, entrepreneur, speaker, and the creator of the historic and legendary Magic Castle, a private club for magicians and enthusiasts. Larson and his brother, the late Bill Larson Jr., were both in television and grew up in a family of magicians. Their father, William W. Larson Sr., was a performing magician and Los Angeles defense attorney, and their mother, Geraldine, was an early TV pioneer in children's entertainment known as the Magic Lady. Right. In 1936, Larson's parents published Genie, the Conjurer's Magazine, which is still in publication. In 1999, Magic Magazine selected the Larson family as one of the 100 most influential magicians in the 20th century. In 1961, Larson met Tom Glover, the owner of the Hollywood restaurant Yamashiro. Larson told Glover about his father's idea of a clubhouse for magicians, and Glover agreed to Milt's proposal to transform the Lane Mansion on Glover's property into the Magic Castle, a nightclub for magicians and home of the Academy of Magical Arts. Larson leased the property and restored the French Chateau Mansion to house the club. His brother Bill, at the time a CBS television staff producer of the Danny Kaye Show and others, helped promote the club among his network of show business connections and recruited members. When the Magic Castle opened its doors in 1963, Bill came on board as president of the Academy of Magical Arts and Sciences and was soon joined by Irene Larson in the promotions department. He also created the Mayfair Music Hall in Santa Monica, California Victorian British Music Hall featuring live stage shows. 
Larson was a writer for the classic Ralph Edwards audience participation TV show Truth or Consequences, starring Bob Barker. He also wrote the Malibu U television series 1967, an audience participation show starring Vin Scully and Jim Neighbors. Wow. Mill Larson and collaborator Bobby Lauer wrote the book for the stage musical Victory Canteen, starring Patty Andrews of the Andrews Sisters fame. And the songs were written by prolific songwriters Robert B. Sherman and Richard M. Sherman. Richard M. Sherman and Milt have been friends and collaborators for more than 60 years. They wrote the score for proposed Speakeasy Nightclub Review in 1957. And it was later produced as a stage radio show called Charlie Send Me, originally The Whoopie Kid, with a new book by Sherman Larson and Roger Rittner and starred veteran actor Buddy Epson, broadcast on NPR and released on LP. Remember LP? By Glendale Record Company. <laughs> Richard Sherman Larson created a satirical record album, which has since made the transition to CD, Smash Flops, featuring tongue-in-cheek songs, a one-man stage play about United States President Harry S. Truman called Give Em Hell Harry, and later made into an Emmy Award-nominated TV movie. They also wrote the comedy classic LP, now a CD, Band Barbershop Ballads. In 1956, Larson produced his first all-star magic review, It's Magic, with a new edition playing West Coast Performing Arts Centers annually. Still enjoying a continuous run, the review is co-produced by Terry Hill. Various editions of the show played West Coast Performing Arts Centers all over. In addition to the 2016 spring season of the touring show, a stellar celebration of the show's 60 years will be held in October at the Wilshire E. Bell Theater, where it all started in Los Angeles. Larson serves as a creative consultant for the motion picture Bed Knobs and Broomsticks from Disney Studios. He has also appeared as an actor on television's Heart to Heart. Larson hosts a weekend radio show on CRN Digital Talk Radio called Hear Them Again for the First Time, featuring rare antique personality recordings from his vast collection of 78 RPM recordings. He's a member with Gold Star Mimic of London's Magic Circle, a Lifetime Achievement Award Academy of Magical Arts winner, President Citation of the Society of American Magicians, member of International Brotherhood of Magicians, <laughs> Blackstone Award, World Magic Awards, Lifetime Achievement Award, Los Angeles High School Entertainment Arts Award, <laughs> Hollywood Arts Council, Dramalog Publishers Critic Award, Lifetime Achievement Award by Los Angeles High School again. On September 15, 2006, Milt and Bill Larson were honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. In 2013, Milt was honored as one of the heroes of Hollywood by the Hollywood Chamber Foundation and the Pacific Pioneers Broadcasters Diamond Circle Award. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, the legendary Mill Larson. Well, it's a joy being here. I really enjoyed hearing about me. <laughs> yeah, relishing in those wonderful words you just said. So, well, they're, they're all true. Sure. And I'm not finished yet. Still got a couple of years left. I, I think after about 110 of retirement, I'm 87 now. My wife and I just bought a, uh, a nice uh, old restaurant up in... Uh, Montecito, and we're going to turn that into a kind of mini magic castle. It'll be a place for close-up magicians. It's very tiny compared to the castle. That'll be open about a year from now, and we're always doing something. Sherman and I, we've written a very wonderful musical, uh, The Great White Way, and we've done several productions of it. So Dick and I write songs all the time. And I, we just have fun. We've been writing songs for 60 years, but we have nothing better to do. We'll write some more songs. There's buildings next to buildings, hotels, and then there's the Magic <laughs> Castle. Do you ever say to yourself, I'm not cleaning anymore. I can't do it. Goodwill, you can come in and take everything because I don't know what to do. Well, I've done better than that because the Academy of Magical Arts, which is the organization that my dad dreamt of and my brother was president until he passed away, I have just recently donated all of the fixtures and the stained glass windows and the chandeliers and all the stuff I've been putting in there for the last, uh, you know, 52 years. Let's pretend, you know, there's going to be this natural disaster that's going to mm -hmm. happen. And they tell you, hey, listen, in five minutes, this place is going to be destroyed. You can only take one thing, Milt. What are you going to take and why? I don't know. It might be a bottle of scotch. <laughs> <You know. laughs> 
Really? I drink it and watch the world blow up. No, but there's got to be something that means more to you than anything else in this place. What is it? I think it would be very, very difficult to say any one simple thing. I mean, it might be some favorite playbill, or it might be a photograph, it might be a remnant of a song, or an old shoe, or something. I don't know what it is. I'm attached to one thing that I would take with me. You want to know what that is? Yeah. I would take Irma. <laughs> you want to explain Irma? Well, Irma is a, a ghost, actually. She plays the piano here at the Magic Castle. And we have a beautiful piano in the in the Irma room, because she has her own drawing uh, room, but uh, it's uh, the piano belonged to Jose Turby, who was uh, famous, you know, back in those MGM pictures with Catherine Grayson. Jose Turby would always be the concert piano player. And we have his piano. And uh, nothing unusual about that, but Irma, who is invisible, plays uh, the piano every night. But, uh, of course, you can't see her because invisible Irma is what? Invisible, of course. But she plays requests, and uh, you ask her to play something, and she died in 1933, but uh, she kept right up to the latest uh, recordings and stuff. You can sit down next to Irma, and you can tell her to play It's a Wonderful World, and then right after that, you could tell her to play Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin, (laughs) and right after that, you could tell her to play Tick Tock by Kesha. She has a remarkable ability of... Anybody visiting the castle, no matter where they're from, she can play the the national anthem of that country. That's right. And that's the one thing about the Magic Castle that also is so amazing. And the one thing about magic that is unlike any form of entertainment in the world is that magic can be performed, if need be, without words. Sure. Many, many ways, many, many times. And so it's a form of entertainment that can go to any continent, any country, wealthy, poor, anywhere in between. That's why magicians, are, you know, American magicians are very welcome in any country because most magicians are visual. The reason it, it is a endless art form is because there's always something in the imagination that you think is impossible. Let's face it, a hundred years ago, you were watching Flash Gordon and uh, Jules Verne's trip to the moon and say, you know, how impossible is that? Now that people are doing that, you know. The thing is, it all comes out of the imagination. It's If the mind can think it, it can be done sooner or later. And all the magicians do is they'll do it now, and they might do it with trickery. The inventiveness of a magician is that they think ahead to the impossible. And once you figure out what is impossible, it's easy to figure out how to do the impossible. And the magicians will do it now. And a hundred years from now, they might be really doing it. But we don't care. We want magic for the enjoyment of people, not to fool people. When's the last time you saw a magician that completely every second, every minute, just blew you away? Uh, Probably last night. Last night. But, you know, we have nine magicians a week working at the Magic Castle. Each magician works one week, and then the next magicians work. And one of the things about the Magic Castle, you come in, you valet park, you go up front, and you have to be invited by somebody who's a member or else you're not getting in. It's a private club. And so you go up to this bookcase that's closed and you're wondering, how do I get in? And the beautiful woman at the desk, so nice, says, you got to say, open sesame. And you say, open sesame, and the door opens, and then you're in this bar with a sprawling staircase again, like something out of the Titanic. And behind the bar is the room where Irma is, where you can see through into the other side, and there's close-up magicians at little tables here and there. And then... Upstairs is an unbelievable world-class restaurant, (laughs) more close-up magicians. There's rooms where there's Houdini seances that take place. And then you'll get tickets, hopefully, for the shows. 
There's different theaters there. There's a larger theater that holds about 150 people. It's a main stage theater where you normally see three acts, an MC, a middle act, and the headliner. Then there's another room that holds about 50 to 60 people. And so then you'll see one person do a show in there. And then you can go downstairs and see other shows. The castle was built on the close-up magic, you know, watch television and you say, well, that could be camera trickery or anything. But if you see somebody standing right next to you and they're showing their hand is empty and they open it up and there's something in their hand that wasn't there before, the close-up magic has always been our standby. But then it goes from there to what you might call the stand-up magic, which would be more nightclub magic or parlor magic, if you will. And then we have the bigger theater. We do comedy and illusions, sawing ladies in half and all that kind of stuff. And uh, about five bars, I might add. A lot of bars. We keep everybody happy. And the most beautiful people from every different country in the world. There's no minorities at the Magic Castle. Everybody is just a mixed crowd. But they all have one thing in common, and that is that they love watching magic and enjoying magic. The Academy membership is half magicians who prove themselves Not necessarily great performing magicians, but with a great knowledge of magic or able to do an act. And then we have magicians like Siegfried and Roy and David Copperfield and Lance Byrne and all those guys. So any given night when you come in, you're liable to see Siegfried sitting at the bar doing a card trick for somebody. Or uh, we have a lot of celebrity members, you know, Johnny Depp's a member. Back in the old days, we had Or Orson Welles and uh, Gary Grant and those kind of guys. So, uh, so you said the other night that you saw somebody that blew you away. No, almost any given night. Now that surprises me that you say that because I'm from the comedy world, and you go in the comedy clubs, and chances are you're always going to see a guy doing a bit on an airline or on sex or drugs. There's always going to be the same themes that you see over and over again. Mm -hmm. But occasionally there's that one person or two people that come in and they just are so unique and so original. I'll give you an example in magic, like Jason Latimer, a guy who won the world championship of magic. He does magic with invisible cups and balls. He takes a formula. Lasers. And lasers and water and things like that. But then sometimes you come to see a magic show, just like you come see a comedy show, and you see the ropes. You see the rings. You see the person sawing the person in half. And sometimes, I don't know if you feel this way or not, I don't get bummed out, but I get kind of like, why are you doing the rings? Don't you know that a thousand people do the ropes and the rings? Don't you know that a thousand people cut somebody in half? Can't you figure out something to do with your talent that's more original? And so occasionally I'll come here and I love this place. But I will see somebody in here that doing the ropes or the rings, and I say to myself, what is Milt thinking when they see this person? Is Milt saying, well, I've known this person for 30 years, and I love them, and I want them to have a place to work? Or is Milt actually thinking, God, this guy's a genius? What are you thinking when you put somebody on, and you know you're putting them on, and you know they're a great magician, but they're doing stuff that's been done a thousand times. Well, the thing is that, take an example of the, the Licking Rings. Like any little kid that ever got a magic set knows how that works. Now, I can watch Jonathan Pendragon, for instance, or shoot Agawa. Jonathan Pendragon does big rings and shoot Agawa and does it with little rings. And you would swear it's impossible. You know how it's done. You know exactly how it's done. And when they do it, it's friggin' impossible. How does that work? And when I see that, I have to admire the skill of the person. I was a magician by the name of Chang. At that point, he was like in his 80s and a very famous magician from the other century. I'm talking 30 years ago. But I was in the dressing room talking to Chang. I was fascinated by this silver-plated thumb tip on his dressing table. It's a little extra tip to put on your thumb and it, it, it you can hide things and stuff. And he said, you're a little 
distracted. He was telling me something, and I guess I was looking away at the wrong time. And I, I said, yeah, Chang, I, I've just never seen a silver-plated thumbnail. And he said, oh, Mr. Larson, he said, this is, this is not silver-plated. He said, this is worn down. He says, all the, all the paint that looks like flesh-colored paint, is just it hasn't been there for years. But he says, when a magician shows his hands empty, you don't show his hand empty by holding your thumb in front of his eyes. You have something that you're holding, and you don't see that. He says, why do people, amateur magicians, will go, go get a little prop like that, and they're so proud of it that they show you how it's done? That's stupid. <laughs> so, so I've seen so many people that will blow me away with maybe the simplest trick in the world, even though I know exactly what they're doing. You know, when you look at uh, Penn and Teller's Can You Fool Me show, which is very clever. I just took my kids in New York to see their latest show. It was amazing. Uh, once in a while, it, you know, they are fooled by a magician, and I am fooled by magicians all the time. Like one of the first things that just I had no understanding of how it was done. I saw a theater show with a bunch of magicians, and on the show was a magician that every magician in the world knows but the world doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And that's Norm Nielsen. Oh, sure. And Norm Nielsen did a routine with dancing, violins, cellos, mm -hmm. just all different size things that would come on the stage and just be dancing around him. That was the first time when I saw something where I was like, I have no understanding what's mm -hmm. happening here. Sure. But you say that happens to you often or not that often? Often. The castle is famous for only hiring the best. I don't watch every act. I don't watch the nine acts a night. I'm maybe lucky to catch one or two in the, you know, three or four days that I'm at the castle. But uh, it's not uncommon for somebody to be doing a routine that is so enjoyable and so mind-blowing as far as the entertainment that I forget maybe a, an effect I've seen before. It's like uh, writing songs on a piano. They're only, you know, one octave on a piano. There's only so many keys. And how many millions of songs are not the same, and they're all written by the same. So magic is really fine magicians. And so many magicians come out of, like, Japan and the Asian countries because they practice, 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 practice. The American magicians tend to take the easy way out and do it fast and stuff. But I've, I've seen I was a convention in Japan not too long ago, and he was doing a, a little simple trick, a jumping coin trick. And in Japan, they take it very seriously because it's who can do, have a jump higher. And they have little posts, you know, like a goal post. But the way that happens is they practice 24 hours a day, seven days a week to make sure that they reach perfection. We, we tend to kind of slough that off, you know, uh, and say, well, it, it's good enough. And I'm not saying American magicians that do the same thing, but uh, we just have more of them. <laughs> so, you know, you have to admire people that, like a concert violinist or a concert master in a symphony, I mean, it's uh, perfection. They don't hit one note that's wrong. Or, or they don't have a job anymore. You know, why Why would the castle hire somebody that's not perfect? We can hire all the perfect magicians in the world. And we have, well, we have 5,000 magicians that are members, you know, so and half of those would be 2,500 performing magicians or capable of performing. And out of those, there may be only a couple of hundred that are absolute working professional magicians day in and day out. We have a lot of people in the castle. They're, you know, doctors and dentists and garbage collectors, whatever they happen to be. But they're making a living doing something else. But they're really good magicians. And they'll start doing tricks for people, blow you away. But they're not making a living doing it. They're doing it because they love magic. The whole thing about the castle is it. It is a group of people that absolutely love the art of magic. It's an amazing fraternity, really. Tell me the last time you went to see a big show, you bring somebody important down, and the shit hits the fan, and the magic just is completely exposed, and it's a huge 
mistake? When's the last time something like that happened and what happened? Well, like I say, we don't really have magicians that make huge mistakes because now my act, and I I don't do my act very much anymore, but a comedy magic act where everything goes wrong. And I, uh, because of my building the castle, so to speak, I do it with tails and a carpenter apron. And then I explain how to make beautiful props in their shop at home. And of course, nothing works. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I put a a nail through a pane of glass and of course I break the glass and I put a cannonball through a solid through solid and and the cannonball breaks the thing. (laughs) So it is total mayhem and they have been the opening act for the amazing Jonathan Hoffman and and, uh, in Vegas and things. But I I really don't perform anymore. But Carl Ballantyne. Carl Ballantyne was an actor too. He was on McHale's Navy. But his original act was a bumbling magician. Not bumbling. He was he, he was above all and he would do magic and it would go wrong but he'd cover for it. He's one of the funniest acts in the world. And all comedy magicians, including myself, stole from Carl Ballantyne. But uh, is it okay to steal as a magician? If it's comedy, yes. If, now there's some magicians who are uh, maybe invented a new way of doing an illusion and then somebody will go out and build the same illusion and do it. That is a real major no-no because somebody's famous for doing something, uh, again, like the, uh, Jonathan Pendragon, as the clearer sawing. You know, everybody remembers sawing a lady in half. And it used to be back in the days of Thurston and Keller and the, the old magicians and they had a box they'd put a lady in. You could put an elephant inside the box and, be, and uh, plenty of room for somebody to get out of the way or turn around. And stuff. Later, John Daniels came up with the Alan Wakeley version of the celibate sawing, they call it. And that's in a very small box where there's no room for anybody to move around in it. And then the Pendragons have the uh, clear sawing. And, and they put a lady in a lucite box. So it's the same old, same old, except uh, after 100 years, they, they kept doing it better. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas. And he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, 
buy this documentary and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special I'm going to choose one person randomly and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest be able to meet them ask any questions they want and if they're not from this area I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast so go to ikilljfk.com pick up this documentary I guarantee you, it will blow you away. All right. I want to go way, way back. Take me through where you grew up, the socioeconomic dynamic of you and your family, and what was the first inspiration that you ever had to get into magic? In the first place, I was, I, I never had a chance because I was born in a family of magicians. So my mother and father were both very involved in magic and dad started the genie magazine as you mentioned and uh, and my mother was a magic lady on television later and uh, my uh, brother is three years older than i was but uh, you know from the day i opened my little beady eyeballs uh there were magicians standing there i mean uh, they were always in our house and dad was very very active in magic and because of the magazine and everything he, he started magazine in 1936. I was born in 1931, so I was only a mere child at the time. But but I was just surrounded by the greatest magicians in the world. And I didn't appreciate that, you know. They they were we lived in Pasadena, and uh, we had a lovely house, and we magicians were always there. Every time you turn around, there'd be a magician there. So I love watching magic and seeing magic and. My dad was very clever, you know, he, he, he kind of kept us away from, you know, playing with the magic and stuff. And, you know, yeah, yeah. He, did, he didn't say we couldn't do it, but, you know, why do the kids put beans in their ears? You know? When did he let you perform your first magic trick? Late, uh, late 30s, 1930s. Bill and I worked in our family magic act when I was about six or seven years old, and then uh, my dad and mother, it's all the cultural background of magic. It was built as a lecture rather than a magic show because during the Depression, uh, we played these resort hotels and there were still a lot of rich people around, but they didn't like to flout their riches. So instead of having a vaudeville show, they would have a lecture. And if the lecture happened to be a magic show, that was fine with them. So I spent the early part of my life traveling a lot, uh, traveling all over America, and uh, doing our family magic acts, playing these beautiful resort hotels. I think that's where I got my love for wanting to build a castle because, you know, I thought everybody lived in castles. Now, were you nervous going on in front of thousands oh, of people? Oh, no, I was, a, I was a born ham. You know, I, you, you know, you turn on the refrigerator light and I start dancing. You know, it, uh, but the... Uh, we were brought up in front of audiences. We both loved performing. And so we decided there was more of a future in producing and writing you know, comedy, in my case. Bill went into television. I went into television. Yeah, so you're doing the family act. When do you decide to break away and do your own thing? Well, I think growing up in... Uh, in magic, I never considered myself a, an act, a working magician. I I did that any time there's a convention or something. If I wanted to show off and do something. My brother was a much better magician than I was. Very early in life, I decided I wanted to be a writer, a comedy writer. There was a fellow by the name of Snag Wurris, a former burlesque comedian. But he was a gag writer. In those days, there were gag writers, you know. But he was a writer for... Uh, Bob Hope and the Rich Brothers. And in his later years, he was the head writer for Jackie Gleason. I mean, he was a brilliant writer. And he was a friend of my dad's. And uh, so he kind of, as my mentor, taught me the ins and out of how to be a gag writer. And sometimes I've watched a lot of the comedians today, and they, they've spent too much time in the comedy clubs doing, a, you know, when the light goes on, you've been a great audience, good night. They don't have the structure of 
the old days of the Burns and Allens and the Jack Bennies and the people who were all clean in the first place. The, but the structure was all the same. You know, here we are in sunny Spain. You know, the, you have to lay out where you, where you are, what you're going to do, and then you have a blackout at the end. And I see so many things on Saturday Night Live that are very, very funny premises, but they just kind of dribble out. They don't have a, an end. You know, it's just like the light just came on and, oh, they, we've, we've had a good time. I think that's terrible. The old day, vaudeville, I love vaudeville. So that that would be my thing. So I got involved very early in life. I've just out of high school. I got a couple of good writing jobs. So you started and, making money right away. Oh, yeah. By the time I was uh, in high school, I, I failed English twice. And I, by that time, I had three published books. So I could failed explain. English, but you had three published books. Well, they were little joke books. But they were still published, and they sold Baker and Larson's Wit Kit and Baker and Larson's In the Aisle, and you know, and those were published just as I was getting out of high school. So we started our own little publishing company, and and uh, then I I lucked out a couple of jobs of sliding into audience participation, and uh, wrote a radio show on ABC Radio. That particular show, the Reed Browning Variety Show, but uh, they had under contract Rex Corey and a 20-piece orchestra and other contract players, and they had nothing for them to do. So they created this audience participation show with this very clever guy by the name of Reed Browning, who was like a Bob Barker. And, you know, we started doing that kind of stuff, and uh, that led into uh, writing for... Uh, the best job I ever had was Truth uh, or Consequences with Bob Barker. We had reunions and practical jokes and you know hidden camera things before it was. Now it's hidden cameras all over the place. But in those days, hiding a camera was like hiding a grand piano. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> cameras were too big. Anyway, it was a great life, and I worked uh, Truth or Consequences on and off for uh, eighteen years. How do you decide that, you know what, this successful writing career isn't what I want. I want to get back in the magic. Magic never left my life. I always loved magic. And uh, we had magicians over at our house. We had a little theater at the Thayer Studio. And uh, we do all six shows in three days. So you know, I was working three days doing shows at the studio. As a writer, as long as you produce our, our quota was each writer had to come up with 15 playable acts, we call them, playable segments. And then that would be 45 acts, and out of that, they put the show together. So uh, I could write the show sitting on a ladder at the Magic Castle, hammering and sawing, and think I wanted to restore this old house. And so we got the idea of doing the club, and, and my boss, Ralph Edwards, uh, it was perfectly fine as long as uh, we were at 9.30 on Tuesday morning. we show up at the studio with our output of acts. And then Bobby Lara and Jerry Payne and I would, would take turns. There's no reason for three writers to sit there and write the script. So every third week, I'd write a script. Every third week, Jerry would write a script and stuff. But our scripts were not, not a scripted show. This was before they called them reality shows. But Bob would pick the contestants out of the audience, and we never wrote lines for Bob, or we never wrote uh, lines for contestants. It was situations where they had to do something that was terribly funny. So tell us how you made the transition to come here and start and build and open the Magic Castle. Well, that was it. We just uh, decided to do it, and uh, Tom Glover, who owned the property, allowed me to come in and said, the worst thing that could happen is I'll make your old house look better. Give me that opportunity. And P.S., I've told him what I had in mind. I've, my grandfather was a master carpenter, and I guess I got a lot of it from that, and that I always enjoyed building things. So you and your brother, not a construction crew, you and your brother built this interior yeah. of this magic castle. Bill was a... Uh, uh, associate producer at CBS, contract producer, and he did the Danny Kaye show and Playhouse 90 and 
all the big shows. But he was basically a cost control person. He was a wonderful administrator and business guy. I was the exact opposite. I was a miserable cuckoo comedy writer that loved to saw and hammer. So I built the castle physically, and Bill built the Academy of Magical Arts as a club and uh, did all of the stuff, the board of directors and stuff. And that's the way it was uh, 52 years ago, and that's the way it is today. Take us back to the opening night. You open the doors. It's your first night. You invite a lot of people. But as you know, when you start something, you don't know. Like you said to the guy, the worst that can happen is your house is going to look better. Okay. Your opening night, take us through that, and then tell us when you knew that the Magic Castle would never, ever go away. It wasn't an instant success. We, In the first place, the old house, 6,000-square-foot house, which was pretty big in those days, the, the castle is now 27,000 square feet. So you don't notice that the big house got a lot bigger. There's an old line I used to use. Which the, main, the main thing is the castle is three times bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And it's all an illusion because as you drive up Franklin Avenue, which is right off Hollywood Boulevard, uh, you, all you see is this old mansion. You don't see where it goes. And it, it dog legs back behind an apartment house, but, but you don't see that part. So we took what once was a parking garage and built a building behind that. And so we turned 6,000 square feet into 27,000 square feet with new theaters and things. But the first day of January 2nd, 1963, uh, was just three rooms of the old house. It had the, the grand entry room and then what is now the close-up little theater at that time, it was the Irma room with the piano. And then there was what used to be the dining room in the old house, and that was what we called the close-up room. Later, we switched those two rooms and made them into a different kind of room. But but we didn't have anything on the second floor, and we didn't have a kitchen or anything. So it, it, we had a bar with close-up magic, and that was about it. So when did you know that you were never turning back and this is what was going to be going on for the rest of your life? Well, it's just the carrot in front of the donkey. You know, as long as the carrot's dangling, there you're going to go for the carrot. And we did. I was able to build a castle personally on my days off as a writer because I didn't have to be at the studio writing or do anything else. When I was doing the Jim Neighbors show, they wanted me to do the show, and I, and I, at that time, I had a couple of other things I was doing, but they really wanted me. So I said, well, look, here's the deal. I'll do it, but I will give you the material, but I will not go to writers' meetings. I will not go to production meetings. In other words, I won't show up at your office, and I don't want a phone, and I don't want an office. And I told my agent, I called him up after I had this meeting with the producer. And, he, and I, oh, I said, and I, I won't work for scale. It's got to be over scale. I figured everything I said would guarantee I wouldn't get the job. So I called my agent and said, I just had an interesting meeting. And I laid out these, these points. And he said, Mel, he said, over scale? He went over, he said, do you know how much scale is on a, five hours a week show, and I I have no idea. I hadn't done it for a while. And he said, well, he said, I'll handle it, you know, but well, I said, the producer's going to call you, and I just want you to know those are my terms. A couple of hours later, we had a call back, and uh, he said, well, I'm very happy to take my 10% of what you're going to make, but I didn't do a goddamn thing. I answered the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, I got the job. I said, geez, it says contract for 100 shows. I said, well, okay, you know, fine, I'll take it. And I, I did that. I just uh, go down, I, I go to the show when we were taping the show, you know, throw in some material if I wanted to. But they were very happy and, uh, you know, a surprise job. But the thing is, all of my writing, no matter what I was doing, has always been fun. And I've told people, I've never worked a day in my life. I would wake up in the morning and 
roaring to go to work. I wanted to go to the, the meetings. You know, it was just a party every day. You know. Well, it still seems like it's a party every day for you here. We just transfer the party, you know. And so, okay, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name. Tell me anything that comes to mind in your head. Lance Burton. Yeah, Lance is one of the great people in the world. And he had his 21st birthday on my It's Magic show. At that point, we did our It's Magic at my own theater. That was the Variety Arts Theater. The second day, uh, Johnny Carson's booker. Jim McCauley. Jim McCauley came down. If I asked him to check out the show, we never gave him a bum steer. If, he, if I suggested an act, they knew it was good and Johnny would like it. So uh, I called Jim and said, come on down, you got to see this Lance Burton. And uh, so he did. And uh, we got a call the next morning and he said, Johnny wants him on the show. I went up to the, at that time we had the four floors of the upstairs bar and uh, I asked Lance to come in, and I said, Lance, can uh, you do a TV plug for us, do your act on a on TV? But I said, the thing is, it's tonight, uh, and they, they tape at 5 o'clock, so you could still do your act and get back here in time to do our shows. So there's no problem there. Uh, oh yeah, I'd be happy to do that. That'll be fine. I'd like, you know, I'll do that for you. Uh, what is the show? And I said, well, it's the Tonight Show. And he said, oh, that'd be, that, that, that'd be fun. He said, the Tonight Show. Is that the Johnny Carson show? And I, I said, yeah, it's the Johnny Carson Tonight Show. The Johnny Carson show? You're asking me if I would do the Johnny Carson show? And I said, yeah, could you do it? The Johnny Carson show. <laughs> and he blew his mind. And Johnny ended up putting him on for 12 minutes. Oh, well, normally it was a five-minute act, but he would always watch the dress rehearsal, I mean the blocking of the show, in his dressing room. And he saw the act. He said, I want to see the whole act on the show. So they canceled somebody off of the book spot they used to go and uh, put Lance on. And that was the first of, I think he was on like 13 or 15 times over, over the years, you know. At any time in Vegas, he'd, if I was watching him in Vegas, he'd, I want to introduce you to a man that gave me my start. And then he would do his act, you know. Siegfried and Roy. Well, same thing. Now, my sister-in-law, who I read, who just passed away, but uh, she was a very, very good friend of Siegfried's. They were born within a few miles of each other. And uh, they started as a manipulative actor, he did. And then they, uh, because of Roy, got together doing a tiger act. And, uh, you know, just a fabulous, fabulous entertainer. And, you know, their show was the biggest show ever in Vegas. And I think because of Siegfried and Roy, because they were prior to Lance at, at up to Siegfried and Roy, but really weren't any stars of magic on the strip. David Copperfield. Well, David is a great, the most, he works all the time, and he's one of the richest uh, magicians in the world, and he's a fantastic person. Last three questions, your proudest moment in show business. I, I guess it had to probably be when they gave us a star on the boulevard. That, that's kind of a biggie, and... uh my best friend, Dick Sherman, had his star on a boulevard 10 years before I got my star on a boulevard, and he's right across the street. There's the Sherman brothers on one side of the street and the Larson brothers on the other side of the street. And I was in the the driveway of the parking lot to the Brahmin Chinese Theater. And so we were always kidding about it, but I said, okay, Dick, I'm in the driveway of the parking lot, but you're in front of Hooters. So <laughs> I said, you know, there's a whole difference there. And then they built the Hollywood Wax Museum, the Madame Tussauds thing. And now I'm in the lobby of, or the sidewalk of the Wax Museum, and I get to look at Marilyn Monroe's wax figure every day. You get to look up her dress. Pretty good view. <laughs> Biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. I don't know. I've, I've, uh, I haven't had too many disappointments. I've had some failures. The, uh, I had high hopes of variety arts 
downtown, and I hope that would be another magic castle. And I, uh, we bought a 66,000 square foot building in downtown Los Angeles, but uh, finally had to, after 12 years, go to chapter 11 and fold up our tent. You know, you have your life is a roller coaster. You know, it was a George M. Cohan line in our musical, Life's a Funny Proposition After All. You know, and you take them and, you know, prove the thing of, you know, the cat that always lands on its feet. And a cat jumped off our fourth floor building downtown. And we said, Oh my God, they watched him go off the side. And we went down to pick up this smashed cat down on the pavement. And there's the little kitty cat going to dancing around and stuff. Damn, he did land all four feet, you know. And so did you. Last question, what advice do you have for the young guy who's growing up in Pasadena in a family full of entertainers or whatever, or somebody who's just doesn't really know how they're going to get to where they want to go? And what does it take to get to the next level and have the kind of careers that like Copperfield and Lance Burton and those people have? Well, I think the biggest thing, my, my dad told me, uh, he was a practicing criminal attorney, but he told me the main thing in life is to uh, try to figure out what you really, really want to do and then work for it and do it and never let go of that goal. And he said, that way you're going to find out what you're going to be out of work of for the rest of your life. And he said, but if you always have that goal, I wanted to be a gag writer and I wanted to be a producer and I wanted to be an actor in that order because I, I loved being a comic or an actor, but I wasn't a good one. I mean, I, I can't remember lines and I can't, uh, you know, there's so brilliant, brilliant comics and I wasn't one of them, but I was funny but not that funny. There again, I'd always come back to magic and a magic castle. I could always go out and break a bunch of props and get a laugh, you know. What do you see in the young artists that you feel will take them to the level of Copperfield and Burden? What advice would you give to them? The main advice would be to be original, to do, learn your trade in the first place. A lot of particularly comedians and people, they just start doing what they do. They don't have any background. They don't know the history. You can learn a lot. That's what I did. I collected all these old scripts and things. Before I got jobs, I'd go to the trash cans and dig scripts out of CBS and NBC to just read what other writers are doing for comedians. You mentioned Invisible Irma earlier. That came out of a book called Hopkins Magic in 1899. And the concept, it was called the Aeolian harp, but a harp that would play requests, you know, and nobody was there. And I said, that's a good idea. So I made a piano, and we put an invisible piano player there, and it played requests. That's been a big high spot in this place for 52 years. But it was an original idea that was spawned from an old, old, old principle. So, so I think the main thing is, to a young person, they've got to make up their minds what they want to do and then do it. Snag, my comedy writing mentor, secret of being a writer, he says, before I had any credits at all when I was a teenager, and he said, if you want to be a writer, get up every morning and write something. He said, it doesn't matter what you write. He said, you want to write a radio show? Write a radio show. Find any radio show you listen to and try to write that show as if you were being paid to write the show. And then when you do that, take whatever you write and put it in a box or a drawer or something. Because someday you're going to be a writer and someday you're going to go back and say, that was pretty clever stuff I wrote. But but that's it. I mean, so my advice to any young writer or performer or anybody else, doctor, I don't care, learn your trade and be the best that you can possibly be because there's always going to be somebody better than you are. But if you try to be better than they are, you're never going to fail. Mill Larson, mm -hmm. yep. 
This was so great. Thank you so much really? for sharing all this time with me. I appreciate it. I love this. I loved hanging out with you. You oh, always yeah. take care of me. Your staff always takes care of me. It is a pleasure. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Marion Bradley from Arlington, Washington. You are a JFK winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Landing on One Parky One, October 1st, 2013, reads Inspirational Five Stars, and they wrote, I love hearing about the climb up. Well, congratulations, One Parky One. You climbed up and you won. And this has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, and if you like the show, tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs> you get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.